0: Iran and Saudi Arabia have a recently announced a deal to restore relations between their two nations earlier this month, in a process that was mediated by the People's Republic of China. This momentous development has prompted many questions, which brings us to how we got here and what may happen next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is George Slowey. Hi, George. Hello. Thank you for coming on the show, George. And focusing on the international aspect today is Christian LaFond. Hi, hey, Christian. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show, Christian. All right, just to get into it, guys, I want to start off with some background information on the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And I think, first of all, I just want to ask, What have relations been between the two nations in the past? I think I'll come to you as our domestic analyst first to answer this question, George.
1: Well, obviously the best place to start with these uh, relations between the two nations is after the Iranian Revolution in 1979 that kind of gave a hard reset to any relations between the two countries. And obviously immediately after the revolution, Saudi Arabia was not particularly inclined to engage in relations with a country that had just overthrown its king as a kingdom itself relations were for the most part fairly stable until the late 2000s early 2010s when they became uh, unstable due to a variety of things mostly that iran was allegedly planning to assassinate the saudi ambassador to the united states in the united states and cause an international incident and the saudi government also executed namir al namir which was protested by the iranians Since then, each country has been attempting to mend relations to no real effect until recently this month.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add on to that, Christian? Generally,
2: uh, everything George said was was quite correct, but uh, it's important also to note that there is a very impactful religious divide between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Iran is one of the main bearers of the uh, Shia religion. Saudi Arabia is at the forefront of the Sunni variant of Islam. And, naturally, this leads to tensions between their peoples, the uh, adherents of these faiths, and the uh, countries that they tend to align themselves with, which also tend to follow those two variants of Islam.
0: And I want to just clarify for our listeners out there, Christian, when you talk about Shiite versus Sunni, that is like the two major sects of Islam, Um, Saudi Arabia being a Sunni-majority nation and Iran being one of the few uh, Shiite-majority nations uh, of all the Muslim nations within the Middle East and beyond. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's all true. Um, You mentioned kind of the divide of like nations allying with each other. And there's been kind of a way that analysts, international analysts, have characterized the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran as a rivalry or like the Cold War of the Middle East with Saudi Arabia being the leader of the Sunni nations and Iran being more the leader of the Shiite nations. How much do you subscribe to this notion or what do you think of that?
2: There's definitely truth to it. I mean, clearly, Saudi Arabia is leading PAX alliances against Shiite nations. You can see this in Yemen. You can see this in Iraq. Iran, obviously, doing the same on the Shiite side. With that being said, oftentimes, these religions are just pretexts for geopolitical problems that were going to happen anyway. So, blaming it entirely on religious differences is
0: probably naive, to say the least. Doesn't capture the full picture, but the picture you're painting of proxy conflicts, especially within Yemen or Iraq, kind of shows the similarities, at least, to maybe the Cold War in general between the United States and the Soviet Union at one point. George, you mentioned any recent developments before the agreement of it, as in 2011. Is there any other further recent developments before this agreement made between the two nations?
1: Well, like I said, the big catalyst for when relations really fell apart was in 2011. And since then, each country has been trying to rebuild these relations The point that they seem to agree most on is they were mostly just attempting to reestablish embassies in the two countries. There was kind of a, will they reestablish them, won't they reestablish them? That was kind of bouncing around for a few years, dating back to around 2018. And now we're finally seeing the culmination of that.
2: Yeah, I'll add on to that. In 2011, the Arab Spring happened. That impacted both Saudi Arabia and Iran. Both had domestic issues. And then additionally, in 2016, Saudi Arabia is famous for a place where many people make the Hajj to Mecca and in 2016 there was a stampede during that annual Hajj ritual. This led to the deaths of hundreds of Iranians who were there for the Hajj. The Iranian government blamed the Saudis for mismanagement and things deteriorated until Saudi Arabia executed a Shiite cleric, again more problems with Iran, and finally Iranian protesters attacked the Saudi embassy and that was the last straw.
0: For la- that was the last straw for Saudi Arabia cutting its diplomatic ties with Iran, or? Yes, Saudi Arabia cut diplomatic ties, not the other way around.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. I guess another question that I wanted to ask to get further into the background of this is how much does Saudi Arabia's fear of Iranian power or, Iranian, or of a possible Iranian nuclear program play into the tensions between the two nations?
1: Well, in terms of the Iranian nuclear program, that is certainly a, a leg up that Iran has on Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has military and diplomatic partnerships with the United States. The United States supplies them with a lot of modern technology that includes deals for modern fighter jets, modern equipment, modern armaments. So this this fear of the Iranian nuclear program and what it might mean for the region has caused greater tensions militarily and diplomatically.
0: I guess I also want to turn away just from the relationship between the two countries for just a second. Um, and look further into one major player that people are talking about with regards to the deal, even if they weren't involved in it, and that is the United States. Um, so Christian, I just wanted to ask you, is this deal a setback for U.S. foreign policy and why specifically, would it be a setback or why not? So at first glance,
2: it's 100%. Just take a look at it. China, our, our main geopolitical enemy was the one who brokered the deal and Generally, we are not on great terms with Iran, so the fact that Iran is starting to get on better terms with Saudi Arabia, an old ally of ours, seems like a terrible thing for US foreign policy. That being said, experts think that that's not necessarily the truth. It's believed that this deal will necessarily lead to more peaceful relations in the region of the Middle East, which would actually benefit the United States rather than harm it. And additionally, Saudi Arabia, is still sending aid to Ukraine in their ongoing war against Russia, which is clearly indicative of the fact that they plan on remaining al- aligned with the United States policy and that they aren't planning on joining any Chinese geopolitical strategy in the near future.
0: And you bring up a good point there, Christian, of even if Saudi Arabia is agreeing to this agreement to an improvement of relations with Iran, that they're still contributing to Ukraine's defense. And as George pointed out, They still view the United States, even if relations have deteriorated recently, as the main supplier of their modern arms, armaments, uh, military equipment, funding for their economic projects, and so on. So I do think there is, you are correct in that. Any idea of Saudi Arabia moving more into China's orbit is a little bit overstated with regards to this. But I do want to ask you, China brokering this deal, is their growing influence in the Middle East a threat to American foreign policy and their interests there?
2: again to a certain extent definitely
0: china is expanding
2: their diplomatic ties all around the world uh, you know a famous way they're doing that is the a belt and road initiative building infrastructure in a bunch of countries and as their diplomatic power grows in a lot of the countries that, that the united states doesn't generally keep an eye on the united states's own power wanes but to a sense this is just acknowledging that china is a world player rather than saying that they're taking over our position on the world stage and to some extent we had to acknowledge that at some point.
0: And you did mention that there is a benefit to American interests and well as saying this was bound to happen at some point China trying to showcase their strength and at least it benefits American interests and in leading to hopefully a more more peace in the region. One last thing I wanted to ask you with regards to American involvement within the deal or American reaction to it is do you think this deal could do anything to contribute to a weakening of what the United States has done in the Middle East in the past of an anti-Iran coalition or nations that are kind of opposed to Iran within the Middle East in their foreign policy, which Saudi Arabia used to be a key part of that.
2: Yes, and they they definitely still are. And I think this might indicate a path towards a lessening of an anti-Iran coalition. That being said, there's no peace in Yemen yet. There's no peace in Iraq yet. And both sides clearly are still engaging in proxy wars there until we really see those wars start to subside, I don't think that any anti-Iran coalition is really plausible.
1: Do you have anything to add on to this, Georgia, at the moment? Uh, no, I think that what Christian has said is pretty much all right. One, one thing I will add on, though, is that while Saudi Arabia continues to provide aid for Ukraine's defense, it's also notable that Iran has been possibly providing drones and other armaments to Russia. So in, in a way, you could also look at that as an extension of the Middle Eastern proxy wars extending a little bit north into Ukraine as each side supplies the allies that they support and have supported. So it's just an interesting way of seeing the proxy wars continue to exist after this supposed semi peace treaty between the two nations.
0: I think you bring up a good point there, George, of like both Saudi Arabia and Iran, instead of being. On opposite sides of a proxy conflict in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia sending aid to Ukraine, while also Iranians helping out militarily with the Russians. I do want to get into the specifics of this agreement and kind of just ask the general question of why does Iran want this deal now?
1: Well, Iran mostly wants this deal because they have a lot of domestic issues going on. There was the protests that began in September that are still ongoing. There is a lot of domestic unrest right now. So we really have to look at this as saying, does Iran really want to have more international issues for itself than it needs to deal with? And the answer is that right now it is advantageous for both countries, Saudi Arabia as well, but Iran more so, especially with the unrest to focus inward and focus domestically rather than focus on international issues that they really don't need to put a lot of time and effort into having a solution for. And the protests after the death of
0: uh, Masa, meaning that the Iranian government is still trying to suppress to a certain extent mm-hmm. as well. On the flip side, I also wanted to ask, why specifically does interest to in Saudi Arabia have in seeking out this deal at, at the current time?
1: Well, Saudi Arabia, again, like I mentioned, is also interested in domestic affairs. Uh, The Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is particularly interested in creating a new, modernized, world player Saudi Arabia, economically, militarily, and politically. So what we really see here is both countries saying we want to focus more on domestic issues, you know, whether that's dealing with unrest in Iran or dealing with, Modernization and stepping forward into the future as a global player for Saudi Arabia. So, really, just coincides as a thing for both countries to say, hey, we can both gain from this. There's no reason for us to not reestablish diplomatic ties. It kind of puts us both forward in the world stage, just saying, look at us, we're coming back together, we're restarting relations, working to reestablish compromises we've made in the past. It's really just an advantageous political decision for both nations.
0: So, Particular as advantageous for both nations, what is the deal composed of, actually, like, what are the specific terms of the deal at the moment, as we know it?
1: Well, the three biggest takeaways are that, firstly, the two countries will be reopening their embassies in each other's capitals within the next two months. We should see that happening by around mid-May. And then the two nations will also reestablish the 2001 Security Cooperation Agreement. In the 1998 General Agreement for Cooperation, which covers basically every facet of relations between the two nations, it's just a general agreement to say that the nations will cooperate with each other. Um, and you mentioned earlier, George, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or also known as MBS,
0: um, and his foreign policy, his interest in securing this agreement as part of trying to portray a more worldly and global Saudi Arabia. Do you want to go any further into that of why? why this deal specifically will aid in his efforts to
1: revitalize uh, Saudi Arabia and put it on a path to a new future? Well, we see in a lot of the moves that Mohammed bin Salman makes that he is actively trying to modernize and move forward and get one step ahead of the surrounding nations and modernize Saudi Arabia. We see that with a lot of his passion pet projects in Saudi Arabia that... Western observers look at it and say, oh, those are are absolutely insane, you know, building a 250 mile long city in the desert, things like that. So this is really him taking that and using that as an extension for his foreign policy and saying, okay, I've got all of these domestic projects that are forward looking and future built. How can I do that on the world stage? How can I do that on the foreign stage? And obviously the biggest thing that he can do at this point is say, okay, who is the current regional enemy that I can realistically tackle? Because if it was just the biggest foreign enemy, it would be Israel. But Mohammed bin Salman does not want to mess with Israel right now. So he's saying, what is a foreign policy win that I can achieve realistically right now? And that just happens to be reforming relations with Iran. It's an easy and simple foreign policy win that he can say, here's what we've done, here's what we're going to do, and use it as a springboard.
0: And would you argue that that's the main takeaway from this deal, George, is that both countries are looking to sort of settle their foreign affairs or at least achieve a victory on the foreign affairs stage to be able to focus domestically on the projects that they want to focus on?
1: Yes, I think that's a really fair and simple summary of it is just to say that both nations want a foreign policy win right now because they want to focus more on domestic matters. So they need a foreign policy win so they can shift their focus. And this is a win that's advantageous for both nations. Neither one loses anything from this. So it's just a common sense foreign policy decision. Mm-hmm.
0: I did want to turn back to you, Christian, at looking at, George mentioned Israel, but I also wanted to look at the effects of, not just in Israel, but the rest of the Middle East. In particular, you mentioned earlier, the proxy conflicts in Yemen between Saudi Arabia and Iran, in particular with Iran supporting the Houthi rebels, and Saudi Arabia supporting the government. How does this agreement, you think, affect the conflict in Yemen?
2: Yeah, so Yemen, middle of a civil war, it's gone for a while, the Houthis fighting the official government, and neither side really able to get a foothold. So Saudi Arabia joined in on the side of the government, they even started to bomb Houthi positions and then started to accuse Iran of providing aid to the Houthis. These peace talks are making it more plausible in the future that the conflict might reach a resolution. The Yemeni government itself showed cautious optimism, and the Houthis similarly believed that the deal was a good first step, but I think that's the important takeaway. Neither of these two groups, the Houthis or the government, really sees an end in sight. It's as good as the deal is, it's not going to immediately solve the conflict and probably won't have too much of an effect on it
0: regardless.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask you about like the reactions of the UND government and the Houthis more specifically, Christian, but you seem to kind of cover that with your response of saying both sides may think it it's a step forward, but they don't see that as a, as a springboard for ending the conflict in time soon. Yep. Do you think this resolution could lead to, a even if the resolution isn't in the near future, it could lead to something in the further out in the future of a peace agreement between the two sides, especially if Saudi Arabia both come to an agreement to stay out of the conflict?
2: Yeah, I think, Drew, I think that's really the important thing here, is if Saudi Arabia stops bombing the Houthis, if Iran stops supplying the Houthis, then maybe we start to see an end to the conflict. But as it stands now... Both countries are still politically aligned with their allies. And until that stops, we're not seeing an end.
0: So how realistic do you think are the, are those prospects, Trish, just your personal opinion? It's probably cynical. I don't really think that it's
2: going to lead to a resolution. Simply because the Houthis want to take control of the government. The, the government currently in charge wants to stay in control. They don't want to um, make deals with the other it, it's a very precarious
0: situation yeah. indeed yeah yeah george Winston, israel as well i wanted to ask you christian as israel has been both an enemy of iran and saudi arabia in the past and still in the present to a certain extent how is israel impacted by this agreement or how do they view it currently
2: so israel is pretty much all experts agree they are the country even far more so than the united states that came out with the short end of the stick they're the ones that got harmed most by this agreement and it came at a particularly bad time for them. Their president, Benjamin Netanyahu, is currently dealing with major protests. He's in the midst of a constitutional crisis. He is accused of attempting to overhaul the judiciary. And this came right after he finally had started to make some progress, um, getting Bahrain and the UAE to recognize Israel's right to exist in the region. So with this agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, it is quite possible that countries like Bahrain and the UAE decide to pull back the rec- recognition in recognizing that a Saudi Arabian Iranian anti-Israeli coalition is much more, is much better for their interests. Mm-hmm.
0: So at a time when older enemies in the Middle East are starting to move closer together, or at least reopening ties is a, is a dangerous proposition. In the minds of Prime Minister Netanyahu, especially as he's dealing with unrest in his country just because of his attempts to, in some ways, over very much limit the power of the judiciary within our, within Israel itself. I also want to turn to, before we get to the end of the episode, looking at China's growing influence, at in least as the mediator of the agreement. And you mentioned earlier, Christian, that you see this agreement as China trying to show off its growing diplomatic influence and its strength. Do you want to go any further into that? Yeah, sure. So
2: I mentioned this deal is really just indicative of China flexing their muscles on the world stage, showing that they actually do have influence, and acknowledging that the U.S. has to acknowledge that themselves. But experts have noted that, again, one of the reasons the United States really shouldn't feel bad about China making this agreement happen is because the U.S. themselves never would have been able to do it. The US clearly has aligned themselves with Saudi Arabia. Any attempt to make a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia would have looked like they were definitely trying to either make the peace deal better for Saudi Arabia or abandoning them in favor of Iran. So they really never had a chance. And finally, this deal was mostly done in Baghdad. It was only completed in Beijing. So it's important to note that probably Chinese influence on the deal was rather limited. They um, are not actually as impactful as the headlines might give them credit for.
0: Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I think what you're trying, what you're getting at, Christian, is that China was seeking, like George said, both Saudi Arabia, Iran, and also the Chinese as well were looking to show off their diplomatic influence or show off their strength and gain a foreign policy win to a certain extent, even if um, the particulars of the agreement show that maybe China did not have as big an impact as they would like the public to believe. Yep, I'd agree with that. Mm -hmm. Do you think this was the most important thing for China with this agreement is showing that they can play the same game that the United States can in brokering a deal like this?
2: Yeah, really this deal is just an announcement to the world that China can play the game of international diplomacy rather than being a statement that they're winning that game. Mm -hmm.
0: And how big do you think that
2: statement is in your opinion? I think it's, it's definitely something to take note of. Iran and Saudi Arabia are are famous for their not great relations towards each other so anything that brings them closer together has to be seen as a win but ultimately both sides wanted it so China just was the one to finally make it happen
0: we're getting closer to the end of our episode guys so I want to get you both to your final thoughts on some concluding questions since we've been through a lot of material today in analyzing this agreement i'll turn to you first george for this final question i wanted to ask of what do you think are the short term and long-term repercussions of this agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia?
1: Well, the short-term repercussion I'll we'll have to look at is we'll have to first see if they, if the two countries actually go through with everything they've said they will do in this agreement. You know, Just because they've agreed to do something does not mean that they will have to implement it. So if everything is implemented in this agreement, it seems like that's where everything is trending. Then I think the short-term repercussions of this agreement will be that we see nothing close to an alliance between the two nations. It's just a normalization of relations. This does not mean an alliance. This does not even have to mean that they are on particularly good terms with each other. This just means that Iran and Saudi Arabia are normalizing their relations and leaving dialogues open. The long-term repercussions of this agreement that we might see, as Christian mentioned, we might see an end to the proxy wars in the future, although that is quite far out and in some ways a little bit impossible currently but this the only time will really tell if this agreement has any long-term repercussions in repairing some of the damage done in the region
0: anything to add on to that christian
2: no i'd agree with with both the short-term and long-term repercussions long-term repercussions are really dependent on the short-term ones i'd say
0: yep and then finally i think you already kind of touched on this christian will ask you if you have anything else to say on that of how much does this agreement show of China's growing power in the Middle East and the world in general since it was clear that they're trying to make a statement to a certain extent?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it really just shows to the world a trend that we all knew already existed, that China was gaining power all across the world and that the United States has, to some extent, been having their power waning in all parts of the world. A conflict between the two is clearly in the card sometime in the future and to some extent is already happening. So it's just, it's just another example of that happening and uh, another example of how diplomacy is showing one of the many ways that they're going to conflict with each other in the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. This has been a great discussion. George, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Drew. Thank you. Joining me now to round on some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Juliana Mori. Hey, Juliana. Hi, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week?
3: Putin's arrest warrant. Could this lead to the arrest of President Xi Jinping? Major protesting in France about Macron's leadership. Thailand's parliament dissolves before election. And Taiwan was unsettled by the loss of allies in Latin America.
0: Some important stories to cover then. Let's start with the announcement from the ICC
3: the ICC or the International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for President Vladimir Putin and another Russian official Maria Belova for quote the war crime of unlawful deportation of population and that of unlawful transfer of population from occupied areas of Ukraine to the Russian Federation end quote. The Russian foreign ministry disregarded the warrants and the likelihood of any trial is small because the ICC cannot arrest sitting heads of state. Different protesters and leaders of human rights groups are now calling for the arrest of President Xi Jinping for the genocide of the Uyghur people claims that were deemed credible by the UN Commissioner of Human Rights in August.
0: An extremely important development in the world as the conflict in ukraine continues on and with other human rights incidents then there was the protest in france as well juliana
3: mm-hmm. after president emmanuel macron's autocratic decision to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 without lawmakers approval mass public protests began in france this prompted the proposal of a no confidence vote which lost by nine votes in the initial proposition of forced resignation of the french president the majority of this outrage is the result of undemocratic processes of not holding a vote for certain bills to pass. Crowds were gathered in the final resting place of Napoleon and were heard chanting, quote, we beheaded King Louis, we can do it again with Macron, end quote. Many French unions are pushing for the protests for the bill as well.
0: A political decision that has obviously provoked some serious backlash amongst the French population, and one that shows no signs of slowing down. And there was news from Thailand?
3: Yes. The parliament was dissolved by government decree to lessen the military's influence on politics because of the past military dictatorships and coups. Dissolving the government allows politicians to switch parties before the vote officially takes place. This is the second vote since the dissolution of the past military junta in 2014. There are many young citizens protesting for a more democratic government with liberal and progressive values. This election could result in a coalition of opposing parties effectively changing the Thai government to be more, quote-unquote, for the people, by creating policies that would result in raising the minimum wage, improving labor conditions, and reducing pollution.
0: A story that connects to previous events going on in France and hopefully can provide a better future for the people of Thailand. And our final story...
3: Honduras is contemplating switching alliances from Taiwan to China. China views Taiwan as its own territory and does not believe that it can have independent diplomatic allies that are in opposition to China's values. Taiwan having global formal relations indicate its sovereign sovereignty, which allows them to have the backing of other nations that are willing to aid them from China's domination. Taiwan's president plans on meeting with Belize and Guatemala to insist on keeping formal relations and not switching their allegiance to China.
0: Thank you very much for coming on, Juliana. Thank you, Drew. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Kasha Kostraba, technical producers Andrew Okulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on The Waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time.